Wiley e. Coyote and the Roadrunner, beloved antagonists of the Warner Brothers classic Looney Tunes, made their debut on September 17, 1949, in Fast and Furious, laying the groundwork for one of the most iconic series in the history of the franchise. If you're not familiar with the Coyote and Roadrunner cartoons, well, then I assume you had a very sad and joyless childhood. So to mitigate that, here is a brief glimpse into this magnificent gem of American popular culture. The Roadrunner's raison d'etre is, of course, to run really fast on roads. In this spirit, the episode identifies his Latin name as Accelerati Incredibus, the coyote Carnivorous Vulgaris wants nothing more than to catch and eat the Roadrunner. The names constitute a running gag in the series for both characters, but only the Coyote receives what might be called a human name. If, at his core, the Roadrunner runs fast on roads, then Wiley Coyote is, at his core, crafty, cunning, sly, artful. This from the Oxford English Dictionary definition of Wiley. In his efforts to catch the Roadrunner, Wiley hatches countless schemes with falling rocks, painted cliffs, devious road signs, disguises, and comically harebrained gadgets from the fictitious Acme Corporation. These schemes always fail, often painfully and sometimes downright brutally. The Roadrunner will then pause to taunt Wiley with a smirk, a hop, a clap of his feet, and a smug beep beep before racing off into the distance. The formula never changes. Fast and Furious is only seven minutes, but in that brief period, the coyote tries and fails to catch the Roadrunner 11 different times. And yet, the formula never gets old. Most viewers end up rooting for the coyote, but not because he's likable. After all, he's trying to kill and eat the Roadrunner. He's the bad guy. And he's a fanatic, fitting that popular, if inaccurate, definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over, expecting different results. So, how does he earn our sympathies? Well, maybe it's because he's the underdog. Americans do love underdogs. Or maybe it's because, fail though he might, we marvel at his relentless ingenuity. Or maybe we actually admire his fanaticism, which one could also describe as single-minded determination, a quality that American culture tends to lionize, which is also maybe at the root of our love for the underdog. For me, though, Wiley's determination his ingenuity and his underdogginess are all beside the point. I grew up rooting for him because I hated the Roadrunner. He is smug. He's arrogant. He's just a bastard. And on top of that, the Coyote always came so, so close to winning. And yet, he failed over and over again. And it's not even that I ever wanted him to win. 
It would have been horrifying if he actually did eat the Roadrunner on screen. But at least I would like for him not to suffer such pain and indignity. Take that first cartoon, for instance. At one point, the coyote straps a snow machine to his back and skis to his feet, racing down to the road below to snatch the Roadrunner. Of course, he misses and continues along the desert terrain until he launches out over a cliff, at which point, via cartoon logic, the ice from the snow machine allows him to defy gravity. But just as it looks like he's about to reach the other side of the chasm, the snow machine runs out of gas, and he plummets to the ground below. Chuck Jones, the creator of the Coyote and Roadrunner cartoons, published his autobiography, Chuck Amuck, in 1999. In it, he explains the nine rules that governed his writing of the cartoons. Some of them are rooted in real-world facts about coyotes, some in myths, some are a blend of both, and one is pure cartoonery. Well, today, we bring you a show based on those rules, an ode to the coyote, and not just Wiley, but all coyotes. The romantic coyote, the mythic coyote, the real-world coyote at once loved and reviled, so often misunderstood. Today, the coyote claims the role of protagonist, presented here in part one of a mini-series we're calling Simple Coyote Math. One minus one equals one. Welcome to season two of Bestiary. I'm Eric Botts, and this is Meg Sipis with rule number one. The Roadrunner cannot harm the coyote except by going beep beep. In 1906, President Theodore Roosevelt created the Grand Canyon National Game Preserve, which then created the Forest Service Policy, a predator control program aimed at eliminating predators and increasing the numbers of more desirable prey animals. The success of the program was, depending on who you ask, disastrous. Or pretty bad. Or somewhat troubling. Or actually, not bad at all. Before we get to the numbers, here's a bit of context. Predators and prey evolve together in something of an arms race. As wolves and coyotes catch and eat the slowest members of a deer population, the fastest members reproduce, eventually creating an overall faster herd. As a result, those predators who've relied on outrunning the herd lose their edge, and those who are, for instance, sneakier and stealthier, survive and multiply thus naturally selecting for a sneakier, stealthier pack. Some evolutionary traits benefit the species, but not individuals. For instance, when members of a species fall constant victim to predators, they develop a tendency toward polygamy and large litters, which predators, in turn, balance out. Often, such checks and balances only become clear after they've been disturbed, 
For instance, by creating a policy that incentivizes the killing of predators. For hunter-turned-naturalist and conservationist Aldo Leopold, Roosevelt's massive ecological experiment in Grand Canyon National Park was a total disaster. Leopold claimed that the deer population in the portion of the park called the Kebab Plateau prior to the Forest Service policy was stable, around 4,000. As we killed predators, that deer population boomed, maxing out in 1926 at 100,000. The deer exhausted food supplies, causing mass starvation and a dramatic drop in population to 10,000 by 1940. The National Forest Service disagreed. Starting with that same pre-policy population of 4,000, their estimates plateaued at 30,000 from 1923 to 1930, and by 1940, dropped to 9,000. Sure, less predators equaled more deer, but that's what they'd wanted all along. In 1931, though, they revised their 30,000 peak to match Leopold's 100,000 between 1921 and 26, followed by the same plummet to 9,000 in 1940. But if truth lies between extremes, then maybe these estimates from an unnamed Forest Service employee represent the most likely reality. He claimed that deer population peaked in 1924 at 50,000, dove to 20,000 in just two years, and then 10,000 over the next five. What complicates these rampantly discrepant numbers even more is that Leopold's widely accepted pre-1905 number of 4,000 has no apparent source except Leopold himself. Plus, the National Forest Service numbers contain large gaps in continuity until 1931, when they revised their data collection methods. On top of that, more recent studies implicate other factors, like food abundance and hunting trends. Still, the connection between Roosevelt's predator control policy and the kebab deer population seems too coincidental to be mere correlation. Regardless, in 1928, Minor Tillotson, superintendent of the Grand Canyon Preserve, modified the policy, urging people to only hunt predators as needed, and in 1931, banned all killing of park predators. By the late 20s and 30s, public opinion on coyotes had begun to mellow, largely thanks to Leopold. But when Adolf Murray described the coyotes as desirable in his 1937 Yellowstone study, coyote demonology began to truly wane. Not among ranchers and stockmen, though. They had dismissed that coyotes could be essential or necessary, so the idea that coyotes might be desirable must have seemed downright absurd, even dangerous. And nonetheless, when Murray planted that seed of desirability, the coyote entered a new era of romanticism in the public imagination. Less academic, more popular projects began to treat predators as not only desirable, but even beautiful and majestic. This anti-demonology and the normalization of Leopold's ideas in the 60s led President Nixon to ban chemical toxicants on public land. But placing a ban is quite different from enforcing it. The ranchers and stockmen who'd been raised to view coyotes as demonic threats to their livelihood were, like Wiley, fanatics of extermination. And, like Wally, their efforts often backfired. Rule number two, no outside force can harm the coyote, only his own ineptitude. 
or the failure of Acme products. Roy Elder had been driving along a Kansas road when he saw a rancher acquaintance of his and stopped for a chat. While they were talking, Elder spotted something by the side of the road. A kid's toy, maybe, or a dead animal. It was small, furry. But as he approached, he saw that it wasn't an animal. So he bent to pick it up, and it exploded. Turns out, this fur-covered thing was what's called, eloquently, a coyote getter. Unburied and stripped of its fur, a coyote getter looks like something out of World War I. It's metal bearing ominous shades of gray, black, or olive drab. The device consists of a five to seven inch stake, a firing unit, a shell holder, and a 38 special pistol cartridge case filled with a sodium cyanide mixture and primer. The cartridge is wrapped in fur and coated in coyote urine or some other strong scent to attract predators who would bite and pull on it, triggering the device, igniting the primer, and firing the cyanide into the creature's, or in this case, Roy Elder's, face. He survived, but it would be 10 months before he could return to work. A 1971 article in Sports Illustrated by Jack Olson, The Poisoning of the West, recounts the widespread adverse effects of these and similar poisoning devices throughout the American West. Though designed most often to kill coyotes, other animals were just as likely to set them off. In addition to Roy Elder, coyote getters caused several more human injuries and deaths. Olson recalls one Denver Post writer suggesting coyote getters be renamed Little Boy Getters. But, says Olson, the cyanide-loaded cartridges are also old man getters, dog getters, girl scout getters, cow getters, fox and marten and wolverine and magpie and hawk getters. They are getters, in fact, of anything that has the natural curiosity to reach down and pull lightly on the carrion-scented wick that protrudes above the ground and wafts a smell of decay and musk to the winds. 1959, a 15-year-old boy loses an eye to a getter. 1961, a predator and rodent control employee accidentally kicks one while walking. The top wad fires into his chin, causing severe lacerations to his face. 1966, a getter explodes in a land surveyor's hand, sending him to the hospital. Unaware of the nature of the device, the doctor who dresses his wounds does not address the cyanide. Over the next few hours, Fluids in the surveyor's skin would seep into his vascular system, causing fluid overload and circulatory failure, along with a pulmonary embolism, that is, a blocked artery in his lung, as well as severe hypertension, kidney failure, and seizures, all leading to his eventual death. Between 1965 and 1971, at least 17 people are injured or killed by getters. Promise we'll be right back after this quick message. Rule number three. The coyote could stop anytime if he were not a fanatic. And a fanatic is one who redoubles his effort when he has forgotten his aim. This from George Santayana. 
Otto Leopold, hunter, forester, game manager, and eventual forefather of modern environmentalism, became the physical embodiment of the shift in public perspective from coyote as demon to desirable to noble. He would, in the words of Arlene J. Ring in her dissertation, The Coyote and American Character, transform the romantic idea of the coyote into a solid ethic. As a hunter and game manager, Leopold at first supported predator control, but the Kebab story, along with personal experiences, sparked a change in perspective. He came to believe in a management method that sought to preserve or restore all elements in an ecosystem. In a Sand County almanac, published posthumously in 1949, Leopold wrote what Arlene Ring has described as seminal dogma for the environment movement. One of the book's essays, Thinking Like a Mountain, details his experience watching the life fade from a wolf he and his fellow hunters had shot down. I was young then. I thought that because fewer wolves meant more deer, that no wolves would mean hunter's paradise. But after seeing the green fire die in her eyes, I sensed that neither the wolf nor the mountain agreed with such a view. After his experience, Leopold called for a shift in the public's approach to nature. He was, perhaps, too ahead of the curve. In the 1940s, mainstream groups like the Audubon Society and the National Wildlife Federation saw him as an extremist. Leopold's ideas didn't gain ground until the 1960s, when the Wilderness Society began to internalize and expand his ideas beyond conservationists to the general public. But the term general public rarely includes people from rural communities most notably, in this case, farmers and ranchers. Most of the time, what we mean is the urban and suburban public. This exclusion, if our current political climate is any indication, comes much to the chagrin of those rural communities, breeding resentment and spiteful adherence to old attitudes and ways of life that run counter to those of the general public. Donald Worster, historian and commentator of the American West, has described the attitudes of Western stockmen toward coyotes and similar perceived threats to their livestock as being underpinned by an almost metaphysical hatred that festers and grows in these small, traditional communities. Consider the response of Roy Elder when asked in 1971 if he knew who had set the coyote getter that blew up in his face. Elder spent 16 hours in the ER six days in the hospital and 10 months in recovery before he could return to his job. Despite this, he is reported to have told authorities, I know who set that coyote getter, but I'd prefer not to say. He's a rancher, an oddball. He never should have set an unmarked cyanide gun so close to that entrance road. But, well, this is cattle country and some of the old hardheads in this country have a funny belief. They think that coyotes kill calves. According to Arlene Ring, the belief that coyotes prey on calves for sheer sport or enjoyment is at the core of coyote demonology, which, quote, consists largely of a body of exaggerated, unsubstantiated tales of the extreme viciousness and intractability of the coyote. It exerted a powerful influence over Western ranchers for decades. It also fed the fury and the fanaticism with which farmers and ranchers pursued the extermination of coyotes and other predators. Their ostensible aim was to protect crops and livestock. 
but scientific surveys of coyote attacks suggest that aim to have been entirely off its mark. Nonetheless, in a 2016 blog post for Harper's titled A Biocentrist History of the West, Christopher Ketchum offers a mini-survey of written accounts of some of the more unsavory methods by which the most fanatical stockmen have exercised their hatred of the coyote. He begins with an account from Dick Randall, former animal damage control employee turned Humane Society activist. Randall tells of one rancher who would cut leg and head holes in burlap sacks. He would then pull the sacks over coyotes, soak them in kerosene, and set them on fire. Ketchum then points to another activist, Lynn Jacobs, writer of Waste of the West. Jacobs writes of ranchers who, quote, torment trapped animals by beating, stoning, burning, shooting, or slashing them, or they may saw off their lower jaws, wire their jaws shut, blind them, cut off their legs or tails, or otherwise mutilate the poor beasts before releasing them back into the wild. Clearly, these represent the antithesis of 20th century conservationism. It's important to note that they in no way encompass all or even most stockmen and ranchers now or then. But those whom they depict are living, breathing avatars of what Donald Worcester called the almost metaphysical hatred of coyotes. Still, the winds of change were blowing. In 1936, the Bureau of Biological Survey placed a ban on predator control in national parks. In theory, a decent step toward fixing previous ecological blunders and re-establishing a more natural balance. In practice, though, the ban did little to curb coyote extermination efforts. Hunters, ranchers, foresters, and other zealots of coyote extermination responded with resentment and spite, placing traps right at the borders of national parks. Truly, a fanatic is one who redoubles his efforts when he has forgotten his aim. Beastiary is generally written and produced by us. Just us, Meg Sipis and Eric Botts. For this episode, however, we had some invaluable editorial assistance from our friend Rigel Kaufman. Thanks, Rigel. Eric writes and produces our music, and he also edits the show. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or whatever app you use to tap into the podcast ether. And we're trying something new. If you have a story, fictional or true, that you'd like us to help you get on the air, or even if you just know of some weird, interesting thing related to animals that might make for a good story, drop us a line. You can email me at eric at bestiarypod.org, or you can message us on Facebook or Twitter, you know, whatever works for you. Our next episode drops in two weeks. Until then, thanks for listening. Next time, in part two of Simple Coyote Math, Fear and Loathing in Los Angeles. Do we have to wait until these vicious beasts kill a one-year-old child or two? When the coyote dropped Kelly, he rushed her to the hospital. 
She died hours later of a broken neck and blood loss. All coyotes would pay for the death of Kelly Keene. And a coyote named Maxine lives for 70 years among the dead in Erie, Pennsylvania. But then this spring after a male coyote arrived and pups came, cemetery officials said everything was different. When she had her pups, she became far more aggressive. The people were complaining about the aggressive nature of uh, the behavior of the coyote coming after them. Um, so for the safety of people on the grounds, we had to take some Part two of Simple Coyote Math comes out in two weeks. Talk to you then.